Hello, and welcome to the Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Case, and joining me today... I'm David Stark, back again. <laughs> yep, and we are continuing with our October horror films with Alien 3. Uh, this is directed by David Fincher, his first uh, feature film. He'd before this done a whole slew of various um, music videos and commercials including some fairly well-known ones, including Aerosmith's um, Jamie's Got a Gun uh, music video. And this is, depending on which cut you're watching and um, your perspective of it, where, people's perspective, where the Alien franchise from a film standpoint starts going downhill. Yeah! <laughs> oh, oh, the two cuts of this film are completely are very different movies. Definitely. Um, with lots of char with characters receiving more screen time in the work print cut versus being almost eliminated in the theatrical cut. All sorts of other stuff. So, right off the bat, we have the film opens with um, an alien egg in the Sulaco hatching a facehugger and basically causing a fire that forces the Sulaco to eject a uh, escape pod with Ripley, um, Hicks, and Newt, which crashes on the prison planet of Fury... Was it, what was it again? Uh, Fur Furina 161, or just Fury 161. Yeah, Fury 161. Um, and right off the bat, we kind of get a setup of our tone here because Newt and Hicks are killed on impact. <sighs> they went through so much in Aliens and just dead. Well, from the sounds of things, from the making of stuff, this is there's a double reason for this. One, um, David Fincher wanted this to be a much darker film than the first two. And by killing off Ripley's basically support network and leaving her on her own again, much as she was at the beginning of Aliens, would put um, would do that. But part of this also is, to a certain degree, not necessarily being able to get the actors back. Yeah, because there was, what, eight years between Aliens and Alien 3? Yeah. Yeah, so Newt was not a girl anymore. She'd grown up. Yeah, so you would have either had to completely recast Newt or kill her off, which would have already been a significant blow for Ripley. And actually at the time, I'm doing some looking research, Michael Bean was shooting a couple movies at the time this was being worked on uh, between the, um, the film with uh, Raffaella De Laurentiis' production company. Um, not like Maniac or something like that, but... Uh, and also doing cameo appearance stuff for uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which is in the uh, extended cut of that movie. There's that. So those two characters get killed off. Michael Bean's character, interestingly enough, for, for legal reasons, uh, is killed off in a fashion where his face is unrecognizable, so they don't have to use the like pay to use the likeness of Michael Bean. Uh, aside from a photograph, because that's all that Michael Bean would agree to use. Uh, Michael Bean actually, in the uh, making of stuff, comments that he actually kind of regrets that decision. If he'd known David Fincher was going to be David Fincher, he would try to be a bit, a bit more ingratiating with him and start off on. So he could have started off on the right foot with it with this director. Uh, you mean you know you don't want just a piece of rebar through your chest? <laughs> Well, it's not just a piece of rebar through his chest, it's also his his head is completely crushed. Yeah. Just so yeah. Bulkhead crushes him. Yeah, bulkhead crushes him, puts a piece of rebar through the chest. Really? Presumably if he'd grish himself it would have just been the piece of rebar through the chest still been recognizable as Michael Bean. <laughs> and aside from the crash sequence, the other character was our first person we're introduced to is Dr. Jonathan Clemens, played by Charles Dance, who most people listening to this will probably now recognize as Tywin Lannister on Game of Thrones. 
Dance actually was not the first choice for the role. The original first pick was uh, Richard E. Grant, who actually screen tested for the role. Um, mainly because two of the other major stars, um, major actors, Ralph Brown, who plays Aaron, and uh, Paul McGann, who plays Gullick, were both with Richard E. Grant in the film and stage productions of With Nail and I. And he wanted to get them back together because they had good chemistry. Oh, man. Paul McGann is nearly unrecognizable in this film. <laughs> and so fairly early on, we kind of learned what this place is. This is, it's not just a prison colony. This is the kind of space Alcatraz prison colony. This is where you put the incorrigibles, the people who have tried to escape from places, the people who are just nasty pieces of work, all, all of whom they set up have double Y chromosomes. Well, as well, but I'm, I'm not, this was kind of made at the time where people were th trying to find, where one of these ideas that was coming to mind for links between um, uh, genetic, genetics and criminality was having two Y chromosomes or something like that. Uh, which is, I think this also came up on an episode of the X-Files as well. Yeah, yeah, it did. And this theory has been basically completely thrown out by this point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I will let Blaine in the comments post the link to the relevant episode of the uh, X-Files retrospective um, for that episode of the X-Files, because I forget off the top of my head. Um, and we're basically introduced to the inmates and the very bare-bones prison staff, because one, this is, this is a prison planet you can't really escape from. There are no get out of here spacecraft or anything like that. They just get a supply ship every now and then. Um, and also, these inmates are kind of here voluntarily. The place has been basically shut down. It's kind of falling apart. Um, yeah. And that's the, that's the other thing. So it, it's we're back to being very isolated without any chance of help or, or um, rescue, much as with the latter half of Aliens and all of Alien. Um, and so we also get a situation here of Ripley's learned a lot from her experience in Aliens in terms of trying to explain to people what the alien is and that sort of thing in the sense that if you try to explain what the alien is, people will think you're crazy. So you kind of have to try and work around that, which still leads to people thinking you're crazy. Uh, yeah, just, okay, I need to know how Newt died. Well, she drowned in her tube. Well, we need to perform an autopsy. Why? Cholera. <laughs> cholera in 200 years. I'm sticking with cholera. That's the reason. Yeah. I mean, I was watching this scene. I watched this, this movie a couple times with the comment, with and without the commentary and just with the uh, score. Um, and the thought came to my head is there is a probably plausible way that Ripley could have done um, that would have just led with, led to none of the question, less questions Just say, oh, the last planet we were at had some parasitic, in, had a parasitic infestation because you're not actually lying. <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're just understating the facts. Yeah. Ripley pretty clearly has some PTSD going on through this film. Oh, she, she had PTSD in the last movie. It, well, in, at the start of the last movie, she still hasn't really recovered from it. She needs a good sit down with a psychologist, a non Wayland Yutani paid psychologist. Is there anything they don't run these days? At this point in the series, it's n not clear. I mean, but then again, we don't have enough setup of the rest of the world. Where it's like, okay, we see the colony world. We know about their mining operations in the first movie, the colony world in the second movie, um, or the colony and terraforming operations, and here they're running a prison. I mean... And by the fourth one, they've got, like, the military. Well, the fourth movie, we have a stupid throwaway line where it's not actually Wayland Yutani anymore. They got bought out by Walmart, but that's something he saved for the terrible fourth movie. And so this leads to the sort of opening bit of the movie where we have uh, Ripley ha asks that the um, that Hicks and Newt be cremated in 
the lead works that the facility has. During the sequence, a little before this, we've learned that one of the, depending on your cut, the either oxen that the base uses to haul stuff around outside, or the dog that one of the inmates keeps as a pet, has been attacked by a uh, face hugger. So during a nice bit of Godfather-esque um, juxtaposition, while we have the funeral for um, uh, Newt and Hicks, we have the the chestburster being born from the animal. Ah, nice. It's got the circle of life going on there. Indeed. And uh, this is the new design, which is in the commentary and making of stuff is colloquially colloquially referred to as the Bambi Burster. Um, due to the fact that this that the other aliens that we see in the first two movies are all effectively bipedal. They're made out of humans, made from humans, uh, born in humans, and so they kind of walk around like humans, even though they have the tail and that sort of thing. Um, this one is quadrupedal, moves in a quadrupedal fashion, and it's probably the fastest alien of all the aliens in the movies. Yeah, because... And yet, people can still outrun it a good number of the times. Yeah, barely. It's like It feels like they're going at a full sprint when they're doing it. Um, so it's the kind of thing where it's sort of like the che- like a cheetah in the sense where... Not, not just a cheetah, but it can outlast you over long distances. Ah, good old pursuit predation. Yep. To probably mention here, while we're going through sequences, we also get introduced to... Another of the major characters in the movie, and one of the recurring themes, which is uh, Dylan, played by Charles S. Dutton, who is the basically leader of the inmates. He is not just their practical leader, but also their spiritual leader. Most of the inmates here basically found religion, and that's kind of part of the reason why they're here. This is actually a holdover somewhat of one of the earlier drafts of the film. Um, now, have you at any point... David, watch the documentary features on the Alien Anthology DVD for Alien 3. Not for Alien 3 yet, no. Okay, so I'm going to get your reactions cold on this. This is good. Um, There were several drafts this movie made before this, before the movie was finally kind of finalized. And one of the ones they went with early on before going through some changes um, at the behest of the studio was one from a New Zealand, from a writer from New Zealand. Uh, I'll see if we can find his name. But the premise of this was that Ellen, uh, that um, Ellen Ripley and the EEV crash land on a artificial planet made of wood inhabited by Luddite monks. <laughs> An artificial planet made of wood inhabited by Luddite monks. Well... Okay, that that just makes me laugh for purely physics-based reasons, as... (laughs) I kind of wish we had, like, a blade on here, too, just so I could get his reaction as well, as science and (laughs) physics is his background. Oh, oh, this is... Oh, that is hilarious. Uh... All right, so so the the director came up with this was a guy named uh, Vincent Ward, who'd previously done a film called The Navigator in a Medieval Odyssey. Um, Ward is from, uh, again, from New Zealand. Basically, it's a sort of time travel sort of thing, where um, people from the Middle Ages during the Black Death end up in modern New Zealand. Why New Zealand? <laughs> because yeah, I would s- because the director lives in New Zealand, and so it's probably cheaper to shoot there. So um, he came up with the wrote a full script, came up with set designs, actually even started building some of the set designs before, at some point, someone at the studio realizes, wait a minute, Wooden World, Luddite Monks, this is kind of dumb and is going to to utterly tank at the box office. And this movie is also going to be really expensive with these sets. I believe one of the questions came up, that came up, I believe from um, one of the uh, producers, um, David Geiler, when he mentioned the documentary, was um, so where did all the where did they get all the trees? And like, as soon as like questions like that pop into your head, things straight up start falling apart. And 
I, this concept for me fails on like three or four levels. First, there's the sheer technologically technology level thing. Is yes, the first two Alien movies have a fairly futuristic level of technology, but still somewhat grounded. There isn't really faster than light travel per se. Uh, it takes a while to get from point A to point B. You have to go into hypersleep, that sort of thing. Everything takes faster. It's, the trip's faster than it would be otherwise. But um, as far as if you're just going sublight, because it's not taking generations to get to get your haul of ore in Alien from wherever it is they picked it up to Earth. But um, <clears throat> on the other hand, you have um, it's it's still kind of grounded. Second, the people in the Alien series, first two Alien films, are kind of people where audience at the time would in some way know and emphasize with people like this. The crew of the Nostromo are truckers in space. They are blue-collar workers, and they have the whole... I mean, there's the whole thing with um, the mechanic crew griping over management and pay raises and that sort of thing. It's all the sort of stuff people audience would be familiar with they probably would have even had the same debates at work with hey when are we getting a raise that sort of thing alien aliens you have i mean it's space marines but the space marines were basically modeled on u.s on u.s army soldiers in vietnam and considering the movie came out in like the early to mid 80s um that's still in the fairly recent memory for a lot of people most people in the audience even if they didn't serve in Vietnam, its odds are pretty good they probably knew someone who, who did. Uh, in the same way that probably a lot of people now, if they, if you did a remake of Aliens and you modeled it after, modeled the Marines after um, U.S. troops in Iraq, most people in the audience would probably know someone who served in Iraq or Afghanistan. For the Wooden World concept, odds are pretty good most people in the audience don't know someone who's a monk. Nope. Can't think of one. <laughs> yeah. Most, um, having inmates who have found religion, it is a kind of a sad fact of life in the United States where odds are pretty good depending on what part of your country. A lot of people will know someone who either has done prison time or works in a prison and who may have found a religion while they were in prison. And so there is certainly a bit more grounding here. And you and we once again return to characters who may fit with more of the life experiences of people in their in the audience, and thus, even if they don't emphasize with the inmates because oh these inmates did these things before they were sent to prison, they do they they can kind of connect in some form or another. So there's that, and probably the third issue I have with the wooden world thing is. It really drops most of the mythology of the of the films in some form or another. The first two movies have the ever-building and ever-escalating paranoia about Wayland Yutani. In the script that we that's described for the Wooden Planet version, the war, the Vincent Ward Alien Three, Wayland Yutani is company not appearing in this film. Because it's a planet run by Luddite monk, a wooden planet run by Luddite monks, um, with some limited technology towards the core of the planet, um, doing a thing of, lever of layers of hell. The closer you get to hell, is the more technology there is. That sort of thing. Uh, because of that, be because they're Luddite monks with very little communication with the outside world, there is the the Wayland Yutani part of the plot is gone. Is completely gone. Vincent Ward's script was kind of more introspective and focused on Ripley, but you're still missing an important plot element with the with the Wayland Yutani stuff. And while for a lot of this film, Wayland Yutani is basically on the back burner until the film's real conclusion, it's still it's still there. So there's that issue. Other than this, um you know with the plot, um we get to kind of the situation of um, we now have a alien running around the facility and it starts slowly picking people off and Ripley starts to realize what's going on and tries to get people's attention on this, including the um, warden of the facility, Her um, Warden Andrews, played by Brian Glover, who is 
who is kind of wonderful in this role. He just... Every interaction with anyone, he just drips with disdain. And yet, he kind of likes these people. Just... The impression is he kind of chose... is, is I get the vibe, sort of like Charles Dance's character, uh, Clemens, is he kind of chose to stay here, um, as opposed to Aaron, who was assigned here, is... He is the one who's like, yeah, so I'm gonna keep the, I'm gonna keep these schmucks in line. Uh, you send anyone else, he'll they'll, they'll eat him alive, possibly literally. Yeah, a few people were in there for cannibalism. Yeah. <clears throat> so and probably the best catchphrase of any character in the Aliens movies with the, all right, listen up, this is Ruma control. Here are the facts. <laughs> uh. Um, and he also probably has the best death of anyone in the Alien series. Uh, I don't know. It's really hard to beat John Hurts. It's tr it's true. I mean, having being the first having the first chestburster is true. But there's something darkly comic about the character's death. So what happens there are is um, the alien is the alien picks off a couple uh, inmates leaving one alive, Gallic, a mentally disturbed inmate played by Paul McGann, in a wonderful performance. Oh, absolutely. Go, uh, McGann is kind of trying to go for this sort of Charles Manson-esque vibe, although he starts off with trying to go with a more Manson-esque accent before he drops it partway through at the behest of the director. Yeah, Gallic was... Gallic, I thought, was a very interesting character, because he really... I mean, he speaks to that this is a very disturbed individual and who is clearly crazy, but like so many actual genuinely people, mentally disturbed people, he's been thrown into jail because that's because he committed violent crime as opposed to getting, you know, help. So, um, unfortunately, Gallic scenes are almost entirely cut from the theatrical cut of this movie as well. This is the other place where the movie where we, when we go from the theatrical cut to the uh, work print cut, the theatrical cut is kind of inferior in, in significant ways because we lose a lot of Gallic's material. Gallic uh, tries to... Um, so um, Gallic, Gallic is, is basically captured by the uh, inmates and tied up in a straitjacket and stuck in the infirmary. So this is actually... I'm, I'm kind of shifting around in the timeline here because I'm... I'm Missing bits. Also, before this, we um, get a, um, one of our two appearances, sort of, by Lance Hendrickson in the movie. Um, as, as a voice role as the as the bishop android from Aliens, who... He was already not in great shape at the end of Aliens, what with the getting split in half by the um, alien queen. And the crash hasn't done him any favors. No, no. Lance Henriksen is voicing a, a broken prosthetic of his own face that does not look good. I mean, when I was... Deliberately so, to be fair. Okay, deliberately so, to be fair. But even for Designed to be Trash, it looks like it's made out of, you know, polyfoam. Yeah. Watching this, I couldn't help but get, you know, Glenn Hetrick and V. Neal in my head just criticizing the work. Yeah. Um, it's... A um, they, they debated whether to, to do a prosthetic thing with Lance Henderson, where it's basically a big makeup appliance on him with Lance Henderson kind of un, in a cutout in a table, before deciding to do, to go full animatronic, to go with to play up the damage aspect of things. Um, I kind of think it works as far as for, for what they're doing it with it to set up that hey, as Bishop mentioned this. Yeah, they could fix me, but I'd never be as good as I was before. I'd be, I'd still be, effectively, still permanently broken. So, he wants the pl he wants the plug pulled on him. It's it's, it's so terrible, though. Yeah, uh, and as we learned that there was an alien on the ship, and as far as there's a face hugger on the ship, and also the um the company knows. Uh, that basically everything on the ship was getting sent back to the company, and so they are aware that the uh, there was an alien on the on the EV. So they may or may not be sending someone to 
pick up the specimen <clears throat> with the uh, rescue sh the, with the rescue ship for Ripley. So anyway, uh, Alien comes into the um, infirmary, and not long after Dylan basically gives his backstory, uh, not Dylan, um, Clemens gives his backstory, where he was a doctor who got sent here after going on a bender after a 13-hour shift and then being called back after a mass casualty in in incident while still drunk, leading to him causing the deaths of 11 patients due to a prescription error. Which is bad. It, it's, it's absolutely bad. But, yeah. The comment by Clemens is he, is he got sentenced to seven years here at Fury with uh, and his license reduced and his comment is i think i got off lightly so he he's still atoning for this and i get the sense that the reason why he's still here isn't just no one else will hire me but also i still have something to atone for i i deserve to be here yeah they have he has really good chemistry i think with sigourney weaver they have this great little interplay where everywhere each is dodging the other's questions clemens who is very perceptive is trying to figure out what Ripley's concerned about was when he sees the acid burns on the um, cryopod, the acid burns near the first inmate who's killed by the alien. He's smart. He puts two and two together and quizzes Ripley and she dodges the question and he's dodging the questions about his backstory and why he's here and that sort of thing. But he is killed by the alien and Gallic witnesses this. And we also learn We've gotten hints that something's up with Whipley before. Um, during the uh, funeral, she has a nosebleed, and some, which is not explained at the time. The alien basically get has her dead to rights in the infirmary, and doesn't kill her. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that the alien only attacks Clemens when he's giving her an injection. So, I actually kind of miss that too. In terms of, I mean. I was just an attack of, um, for lack, uh, it was a target of opportunity. I hadn't really made the connection there. Because yeah, he gives, because he, because the alien completely ignores Gallic, because Gallic's not a threat to Ripley at the moment. Um, I never thought of the idea of the alien trying to, of protecting the, the host of the queen. Hadn't thought of that. So Ripley then runs to the cafeteria where the. Uh, where Warden uh, Andrews is trying to is doing doing his rumor control thing about the two people who everyone thinks Gallic killed because you know Gallic was found with near two dead bodies and covered in blood and he's a mass murderer so you know <laughs> and then this is where the, the most darkly com hilariously darkly comic death in the Alien franchise happens where the warden's basically telling Ripley, no, you're hysterical, there is no alien, you will shut up, you will return to the infirmary at... And then is pulled up through the ceiling by the alien. Like you do. <laughs> at which point now it the situation becomes the inmates effectively led by Ripley versus the alien, with the fact that they are actually less well-armed here than they were on the Nostromo. And the Nostromo, ha Nostromo they were only armed with Cludge together flamethrower units. Whereas here they have, let's see, some carving knives and a few and a couple of fire axes. Pretty much. And all the industrial chemicals that you'd have in a lead smelting unit. But this leads to the third major alteration from the uh, work from the uh, work print of the theatrical cut, where they have the plan. Now, they have this uh, chemical, this very highly flammable, highly um, volatile chemical. Uh, I forget the name. It's a bit of a mouthful, which they're planning to use to basically light a whole bunch of the place on fire and to herd the alien into a toxic waste containment unit where it will hopefully stay there until somebody who actually has the resources to kill it will come and kill it. Which is pretty much a really good plan. Yep. And it, and this is where the difference comes in. In the work print cut, it works. It runs into hitches, such as one of the inmates holding a mining flare is killed by the alien, causing him to drop the flare, igniting the uh, material. 
which kills a whole bunch of the other inmates. But it works. Um, one of the inmates ends up sacrificing um, himself to get the to lure the inmate in, to, lure, to lure the alien into the uh, toxic waste contain um, chamber. But it works completely works, and then leads to the quest um, them Ripley kind of having the having the time now to investigate the rescue team and determine whether or not they were whether it's a basically a colonial marines rescue team or if this is a Wayland Utani rescue team because the difference is important. Yeah. yeah. Although one thing that I was wondering with the you know toxic waste, you know, it's a sizable room and as explained it's like 6 feet of solid steel, so nothing's getting in or out. Why didn't they just grab a bunch of food and hide out in there? <laughs> um the well that's a good answer. They do explain there is no that there is literally nowhere out. There's even ventilation system, uh, ventilation out. So one of the things where you go in there, you hang out for a while, you asphyxiate, you die. Well, you don't have to close the front door. <laughs> Still not entirely ideal. Um, the room they pick in later is near the uh, the lead works. It's certainly not comfortable, but it is has a bit more ventilation to it. So there's that working for it. During this bit, we learn that uh, Aaron, the uh, assistant to Andrews, has the nickname of 85 because of his IQ score. Because of his reported IQ score. Yes, his reported IQ score. Uh, there was a bit in the script um, later on that was cut, which had Aaron kind of snapping and chewing everyone out and giving their reported IQ scores from their files. Also... Worth noting is that while 85 is below average, it is by no means approaching um, uh, mentally mentally disabled. Thank you. Yeah, this is the point of the series where at this point in the movie is we get to probably the uh, where we really get the characterization of the inmates to shine in a way that they hadn't really before. At least not in the uh, not in the theatrical cut where we have um, I think the big three of the best actors of the inmates. There, there's Dylan, who've been established before, who is Charles C. Dutton, excellent speaker, excellent actor. You really get the feeling that he is the person with the charisma and the spiritual force of will to, to hold these people together. And in fact, there's a point in the movie after Andrews dies where basically everyone's like, no, Dylan, you should lead. We only listen to you anyway. We're, you're, you're the one we respect. We didn't respect Andrews. We certainly don't respect uh, Aaron. And Dylan kind of pushes things aside to Ripley, partly saying, hey, she's the office one, she's the officer type. But two, I, he's kind of implying that she's the one who actually knows what's going on with this thing. And so she's the one who should take the lead on this because she knows what we're dealing with. Then we have Morse, by Danny we uh, played by Danny Webb, who he's the cynical kind of selfish one, but he, he he's very charming in that respect in terms of, he, he has some great smart, uh, smart aleck lines in the movie and he gets to live. <laughs> yeah. He, he's, he's the guy who gets to survive at the end of the movie. Yeah. He gets Ripley's old job. Yeah. Also, we have Pete Postlethwaite as David, who also has some great lines. He's the one who, explains about the uh, the toxic waste, the great line of, oh, I saw a, a truckload of this fall into a seaside, seaside bunker once. Put a tug in dry dock for 16 weeks? Great stuff. <laughs> oh, because Pete Postlewaite is just... No matter what movie he's in, he's always bringing something fun to it. I mean, you're always going to enjoy his parts in a movie. They're probably not in a good movie, but you're going to enjoy his parts in him. <laughs> this is true. So, yeah, this is this fun movie. Um, during all this, also Ripley learns that, yes, she has... Yes, she has a uh, chest burster in her, and it's a queen. In the work print cut, we had a bit more set up with this, where when the dead ox is brought in, one of the inmates finds a dead queen facehugger which actually has a new design just for this movie to make it look a bit more armored and bigger and that sort of thing. But we kind of lost that with this cut, with the theatrical cut. 
And man, so much of this review is, oh, and this part was amazing in the work print cut, but you didn't see it in theaters. Yeah. So Ripley originally uh, goes to ask Dylan to kill her because she, she can't do it herself. She says, and he cuts a deal. I'll help you. I'll help you die. If you help us kill the alien, not one second before leading to one of the, I think the best bits of both the theatrical cut and the work print, which is the cat and mouse game with the alien where they realize, Oh, Hey, it still wants after the inmates. And we've got this here lead works. So let's douse it in lead and that should kill it. Molten lead. Spoiler warning. It doesn't. <laughs> it kind of does. It, it, it gets it super hot so that they can douse it in super cold water, which causes it to explode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they actually set that up fairly well, even because with, when we have the fire earlier, the uh, um, when they hit the sprinklers, you see like all the super hot buckets and that sort of thing cracking and breaking as they're rapidly cooled. As well as, forgot to mention what happens to Gollick's character. So, if you are watching the theatrical cut of the film, Gollick's character kind of disappears. If you're watching the work print cut, this is where his arc pays off. Seeing the alien kill Clemens, it Gollick kind of begins to worship the alien. Now, in the theatrical cut, the attempt to capture the alien doesn't actually work. It's still loose, and this leads to Ripley investigating her chest burst her chest burster and asking Dylan to help her kill her and then coming up with a plan. In the work print gut, cut, Gullick uh, knocks out more so he can break out of the infirmary, kills the guard protecting the toxic waste container um, chamber, releases the alien, which then promptly kills him. Like you do. Well, to be fair, like the alien does. Gullick is... Gullick is unhinged and is, wor is worshipping the alien is a sort of god of death and that the, that the two of them are going to go and kill everyone together and then there'll be sunshine and rainbows sort of a predecessor to um, oh, Brad Dourif's character in the fourth film mm-hmm so ultimate so now with the alien and loose again they have to recapture it meanwhile the company is uh, sent the message saying, hey, we're not going to let you... Hey, don't kill the alien. Leave it alive. And we're coming with the containment crew. And then after they get the signal from the EEV bioscan, it's message, quarantine Lieutenant Ripley, we're stepping on the gas to get here ASAP. Yeah. You know, if they just stepped on the gas at the beginning, they probably yeah. arrived when it was locked up. Oh... To be fair, there's very little turnaround time between them learning that they have the alien imprisoned and them learning about Ripley's, um, that Ripley has the, ch has the uh, chest burster. So Ripley basically persuades the guard, persuades the inmates that, hey, the company's not going to kill the alien. They want to capture it. They really want to capture it and research it. We have to kill it ourselves. Otherwise... It won't be dead. Yeah, one, it won't be dead, and we'll probably get a bunch of these loose on the galaxy. Also, they may kill all of you for having seen it, because you all are expendable. You are more expendable to the company than the crew of the Nostromo and a squad of, of colonial marines. And the colony! On and an entire colony, this is true. So, there's that. The, uh... So we get, we get the cat and mouse game with the alien. And one of the things I like about this is this is the first POV shots we ever get from the perspective of the alien in this sequence. And what they are, how they are done is they are done using anamorphic film with a non-anamorphic lens, which gives it this sense of distortion at the edges. It's sort of like if you were to go onto your widescreen television and adjust your aspect ratio on the TV to panoramic and watch anything. Could be episode of Star Trek, which is in 4x3, could be a movie in widescreen, and look and see what it does to the edges of the screen. It Everything gets all stretched out and that sort of thing. And that's basically 
what it does here, except in a sort of narrower aspect ratio. And it gives this sense of distortion to it where you can still tell what's going on, but it's it's off. And do, additionally, they do this all with a steady cam ring that's basically running through these corridors full tilt while also spinning around and going up and turning sideways and that sort of thing to reflect the fact that the alien can run pretty much on any surface. Yeah, this this was a very, very cool effect. Um, I thought it was really great. I do think it might have been a bit of a mistake, however, because we're seeing things from the alien's point of view, and the alien does not have eyes. Well, not perceivable eyes, but yeah, I, I do agree. Um, but it, it definitely builds a sense of tension where you are seeing where the alien is in perspective to whoever its prey is, and you're getting that sense of speed um, without having to do, like, dolly shots or that sort of thing with while showing the puppet yeah. running along the walls and ceiling and that sort of stuff. Actually, it's probably a good point to ma- describe how they did the um, effect for the uh, um, alien here, because the- while we have a suit performer in some sequences of this movie, this is an alien film where probably for the majority of the film, they didn't use a suit performer for most of the alien sequences. They used what the, what the um, effects team described as, quote, mo motion, where it's not stop motion, because the problem with stop motion is you see every frame of movement, which means what you miss is blur, motion blur, that, that, um, that you would give you expanded fast motion, um, the, the sense of speed. Because if you see someone running at fi- at the 24 frames per second or whatever the, the frame count is for PAL, I think it's like 48, you're still missing chunks of information that shows up as blurring. S- with stop motion, you don't get that. What they did is they used um, a rod puppet done somewhat at a undercranked format, um, undercranking, to kind of give a bit of, of that, um, that sort of stop motion filming slower than its um, thing while also using camera control, um, movement of the camera, like you're doing with um, normal effects work with miniatures and that sort of thing, on a, a green screen to get that sense of speed. And from there, they just rotoscope out the uh, rods. Uh, it, it, it's a really neat effect, and it works fairly well. It's sti- um, There are a few issues here and there with how with the compositing, uh, related to slight differences of lighting between the alien and the set. But otherwise, it works really well. It really allows the alien to have a sense of speed that it really didn't have in the first two movies where, yeah, we, we saw it climbing on the ceiling in Aliens, but generally when we see it move, it's kind of... It's moving a little slower. It's... it's In, in Alien, it's positively sluggish in some respects, but uh, Alien's a little faster, but not that much faster. Because you got to trying to get a guy in a suit to move quickly and if it's a heavy suit they're not going anywhere whereas here it's you have the aliens base alien basically just running full tilt and it gets a really profound sense of speed it make makes it really feel like a threat like a bigger threat than the alien has ever been before yeah well it's a different kind of threat it's the you-can't-escape-it threat than the it-could-be-anywhere. Though it certainly has the uh, you-can't-it-could-be-anywhere uh, threat earlier as well, where you have the alien lurking in the ductwork of the facility and that sort of thing. So, it, it kind of ups it from it-could-be-anywhere, if you can figure out where it is, you can try and figure out a way to contain it, to it-could-be-anywhere, but even if you know where it is, that won't save you. So they do manage to kill it in the lead works, but this now leaves the matter of the um, chestburster and Ripley. And this whole process, by the way, basically leaves us with kills pretty much all the inmates, except for Morse. And Aaron has sat this out because he is convinced the company is going to kill this thing. It'd be crazy for the co- for the company to want to not kill this thing. It's a horrible monster that kills people. Why wouldn't you want to kill it? Because you can get get it to kill people who you don't like. Mm-hmm. Or, or that girly knowing Wayland Yutani, get it to kill people you've been paid to kill. Yep. 
Dylan sacrifices himself to keep it with the lead. Um, pretty much the rest of the inmates are killed through the cat and mouse thing. And Morris is the one who's in the position to pour the lead. So at through all of this is going on, also a dropship from the uh, from Wayland Yutani shows up, and on board is once again, depending on the cut of the movie, either another Bishop model android or the designer of the Bishop model androids. Who, if Alien vs. Predator is canon, is probably a Wayland. Yep. If you go with the if you go with the canon as determined by alien colonial marines, it's a uh, it's a android um, posing as the son of founder of the uh, of um of uh, posing as a Wayland. But we're going to pretend that game doesn't exist because that game is kind of stupid. Uh, oh, oh yes, but but according to that game, Hicks is still alive. <laughs> Not Newt, but Hicks is still alive. You couldn't really call it Aliens, Colonial Marines, and then not bring back the surviving Colonial Marine. (laughs) Anyway, that game is terrible. You shouldn't play it. Um, The general consensus I've heard is that even people who bought it for $2 on Steam felt they wasted their money. Um, But Alien Isolation, good film. Game. Good game. Good game, indeed. So, in any case, this this character, whether an android or actually the designer, uh, is credited as Bishop 2 and played by Lance Hendrickson in the second of his roles in this film. But his first on-screen role. <laughs> well, his first on-screen appearance in the film. Yeah, true. He tries to talk Ripley down from the, ed- from the edge. And this basically... Lo- this almost works she he she's not quite convinced that they're going to actually destroy the destroy the alien uh basic response is how can i be sure that you kill it and his response is you'll have to trust me and that is the wrong answer yeah probably would have gone with because it's a monster yes because it's a monster if you like we'll let you watch and then you'll find then you figure out a way to make it look like you you killed it when when you actually did well Seeing as once they have it out of her, they don't need her anymore. She could just not wake up from that surgery. That is also true. So, at which point Ripley basically goes and go, go Ripley and Morse go to so that Ripley can jump into the giant vat of, of uh, molten lead. With um, Aaron kind of having a change of heart and trying to clobber. Uh, Bishop with a fire extinguisher where if you're in the theatrical cut, Bishop recovers re- immediately from this and, and which shows hey, he's a droid. In the work print cut, he spends about a good like 30 seconds like selling the wound and they have a prosthetic effect where it's like his ear was nearly taken off by the fire extinguisher and he climbs up on the uh cyclone fence and holds up his bloody hand saying see i'm not a droid um and that sort of thing trying to talk her back down again but neither version Aaron is immediately shot down by one of the marines who's with uh who's coming as the escort yeah and ripley jumps into the lead to kill herself and again depending on the cut one one last difference in the theatrical cut the chest burster comes starts to come out of ripley as she's descending and she grabs hold of it with both hands and brings makes make sure that it goes down with her. Otherwise, she just kind of falls in a arm-spread, somewhat Christ-like pro- pose. Yeah, because you got to get the messianic imagery going. That she is dying for the sins of Wayland yutani Yep. <clears throat> <sighs> so, this film... The work print cut, I think, is really good. Um, it does have the problem of being a much bleaker, darker, more grim tone of a film than the first two movies were. And the first two movies were pretty dark in their own right anyway. But this one, it kind of works. Um, the, the work print cut kind of works. If you, um, I feel a lot of what David Fincher was going for in the movie, though he wasn't able to really get all he wanted in the presentation. 
Um, there was a lot of executive meddling on this movie. Lots of frequent interventions from the staff of um, 20th Century Fox and that sort of thing. Particularly because, due to the whole mess with the Wooden World script, when David Fincher started shooting, the script wasn't entirely done. <sighs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> and so they were getting alterations during filming... And because of the set construction for the earlier world wooden world thing, there was already a bunch of money spent already on the film, which were which a lot of it ended up be, being thrown away. Some of those sets were able to be repurposed into the uh, sets for the um, um, for Fincher's version, but still. And there was kind of the uh, complaint that it felt to a certain degree like a retread of the first film because it's once again one it's one alien versus a bunch of people in a very cramped, claustrophobic environment. But I think, to a certain degree, the ways that it revisits the first film builds on the strength, uh, are, are part of the film's strength. Yeah, I mean, this film, they don't try and be, oh, what is it lurking? Because, you know, this is the third film. We already know what it is. This one, you know, it's working very much with, you know why it's scary, and these people are scared. Yep. And it really does a great job of getting back to the roots of the fact that the alien is something where you can't negotiate with it, you can't reason with it, and it has physical capabilities above that of most normal people, of, of any human. So, and it amps things up where not only is it the super stealth ambush predator, it's the super pursuit predator. So it's coming from anywhere and everywhere, and there's nothing you can do to stop it, as unless you get super clever and creative. If only they'd had a power loader. Yeah. <laughs> so now they're the alien franchise after this movie basically lay fallow for a real for in terms of films for a long time. But we still got um to bring up my bring up our Pacific Northwest collection connection since we both are in the Portland area, Dark Horse Comics out of Milwaukee, Oregon, put out um, had the Alien license for the comics and put out a bajillion D comics. Yes, they did, treading very very different ground than uh, the movie because they start the Alien comics started I want to say either eighty seven or eighty eight, which was shortly after Aliens, and so started as a sequel to said film. However. Once Alien Three happened, they had to, they went back and changed the Hicks and Newt characters into suspiciously similar substitutes. Yeah, and we had lots of aliens, lots of alien material of various types, including crossovers with other series, including a uh, canonical crossover with the Stormwatch comic book from Wildstorm, which wrapped up Stormwatch and set up the Authority. I love the authority, but that comic is so inconsistent. Yeah. But still, I think as far as the reaction to this film goes, um, I think Alien 3 is a film that really, because of the problems with the theatrical cut and the cuts that were made and the big plot holes that were introduced, it tanked at the box office. Um, David Fincher has disowned the theatrical cut for good reasons. Like he quit towards the end of the, of the, um, of shooting and the editing process. And when they did the work print cut, he was, didn't actually have any involvement with that. They just kind of worked with the, the cut that Fincher liked and tried to recreate as much of that as they could and tried reintroducing that, that material. But I think in particular, once 2000, once the work print cut was put out in 2003 for, I think was the, uh, Alien and uh, Quadrilogy DVD box set, which is not a real word. The proper word is. It is not a real word, but it, but the box set is very impressive and definitely something you could <laughs> you could bulletproof your car with a few of those. Um, like the good old fashioned original Game Boys. Yeah. It, um, when that cut was reintroduced, a lot of people kind of rediscovered Alien Three, and they had a much better appreciation of it. And heck, even that matter, I've been revisiting some old video games, and I played the uh, Alien Three NES uh, Super Nintendo game, 
it's actually fairly good. It does have the, the narrative problem of there are a lot more aliens in the Alien 3 game than there are in the movie. But it it feels tonally similar, and it fits with the concept of the uh, film, and it kind of does a sort of uh, Super Metro, uh, Metroid-style gameplay of exploring the complex and sealing it off from aliens and that sort of thing. Great. Now I want a Metroid-Alien crossover. So do I, um, actually. Metroid attaching itself to an alien queen. <laughs> um, Other brain-alien queen hybrid. Hmm. Nintendo, do this. We will give you all the money. <laughs> uh, the uh, work print cut really holds up in a lot of way- a lot more ways. Um... Additionally, speaking of people who kind of made uh, their first film experiences on this, this is the first movie that Elliot Goldenthal scored. Um, and as someone who likes to pay attention to film scores, as I mentioned with the uh, Think from the World review, um, our local classical music station, All Classical 89.9, actually streams online. They have a uh, weekend radio program called The Score, which covers film scores. And, it co- and this film's score by Elliot Goldenthal is really good. Great mix of orchestral elements, sort of odd percussive instruments, which give a sort of tonal feel, a, a tonal feel to, which builds up a sense of suspension and dread and a, uh, some rock guitar bit during the one scene, which I think, which is in both cuts, which I think probably could have been removed from the film entirely and not heard it, which is the scene where some inmates attempt to rape Ripley. The, the attempt fails due to the inter- intervention of Dylan but it's a scene which kind of comes out of nowhere and is never really called back on for the rest of the film. Yeah, I mean, it's basically just there to reinforce Andrews's bullying of Ripley, saying, you know, well, you know, these are very dangerous men, you know, murderers and rapists. You should stay in the medical bay and wait for rescue. And this is kind of all it really does, and it, it all it really does. And after the, even then, there's no real payoff for it. We don't we don't have Ripley going. Okay, maybe I should stay in the medical bay, or we don't have Ripley in any way kind of reacting to it, or lingering implications of it in, in terms of with her can, how she relates to the inmates, particularly after Andrews's death, where she ends up becoming the de facto leader of the inmates. The closest we get is that one is that the inmate who sacrifices himself as part of the uh, fire plan is one of the uh, attempted rapists, and that's pretty much it. But frankly, you can just pull the attempted rape scene out, and the movie is not impacted in any fashion. Absolutely, that is like the one thing where yeah, you, you could cut the scene out absolutely. You could even like fast forward through it. Like, I believe it is one. That scene is just one chapter on the DVD. So, like, when you get the start of it, just hit chapter skip, and you're fine. You'll miss no narrative beats of any sort. Aside from that, again, I say that the work print version of Alien Three, not the theatrical cut, holds up very well. And I think that with the first two Alien movies, with Alien and Aliens, and Alien Three. It does make a very good, complete whole. And if you were to stop here, the series would be fine. So, um, any final thoughts? Uh, avoid the theatrical cut, watch the work cut, or assembly cut, or just the 2003 one. Yeah, um... The only real reason to watch the uh, theatrical cut is if your DVD has DVD or Blu-ray has the uh, score-only audio track, which is usually just with the uh, the um, work print, the uh, uh, theatrical cut. But other than that, skip it. Do also check out the film soundtrack as well, whether pick up the uh, CD oh, or absolutely, what have you. So to wrap this up. Next week we are going into an older horror film territory, continuing with our uh, science with our science fiction horror with the 1970 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, starring Donald Sutherland. Ooh. So, 
that is a film which is which was highly regarded at the time and is highly regarded now. So I'm looking forward to that. So until next time, I'm Alex Case. I'm David Stark. And signing off.